0: To bring their dispute with the Iranian government on the subject of the termination of the Anglo-Iranian oil companies. Uh, Throughout this night in Washington, officials will continue their search for some way to negotiate the hostages. Separation too. is the first movie from Iran to win the Academy Award. For...
1: Well, the game, some said, would never take place. Here it is unfolding with real drama,
0: and it's Iran. Five minutes before... Hi, welcome to the Iran 1400 podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's episode will feature the audio from a spotlighting an author event that we had with author and historian John Gasvinian on May 7th, 2021. John discussed his new book, America and Iran, a history 1720 to the present. The episode will feature his 30 minute presentation followed by a 30 minute Q and A with the audience. We hope you enjoy.
1: Give you A brief overview of the book. Uh, so this is a project I've been working on for uh, m- many years. Um, and it came out of this interest in, you know, telling this story. I mean, I kind of looked at this I thought, you know, as a historian. People have done the history of U.S.-Iran relations before, and, and, and people will do it again after me. Uh, it's neither the first nor the last book. Uh, that's going to be written on the topic. But I wanted to try to do a few things a little bit differently with this book that I felt hadn't been done. Um, and uh, hopefully I've been successful at doing that. Uh, you can, uh, I guess, judge for yourselves. But uh, one of the things that um, really struck me was that, obviously, you know, when I, in a way, it's, uh, some of these things are interrelated. I mean, one of the issues that I think is a real problem with the way we approach the history of U.S.-Iran relations um, is that immediately we're looking for what went wrong uh, and who to blame. Uh, obviously, most people have a strong sense, or at least some awareness of the fact that the United States and Iran today have a very difficult, uh, very negative relationship with each other to the extent that they have any relationship at all. Um, so it's natural that you would come to a historian and say, well, help us understand what went wrong. Like, How did, you know, how did we get here? And that's fine. I think that's a very understandable instinct. But I think kind of embedded in that uh, question is uh, some interesting assumptions that are worth unpacking. The first for me is, well, if everything, if everything went wrong, is the implication that at some, at some point, perhaps things went right? Uh, and what does that look like? Um, I think that's just as interesting for me as a historian. I think this constant fixation on looking at the U.S.-Iran US, historical relationship as a kind of catalog of failure and hostility and negativity actually misses the larger picture, which is that for the overwhelming majority of the relationship between these two countries, there was deep mutual fascination, uh, admiration, uh, even a kind of mutual idealization. This dates back at least a couple hundred years. Uh, That is what really marks the U.S.-Iran relationship historically, as far as I'm concerned. That is what really characterizes it. The last 40 years have in some ways been a sort of blip uh, in the big history of these two countries. This was a very, very positive relationship for a long time. The other problem, of course, with, uh, you know, I'll say more about that in a minute, but the other problem with, I think, approaching it through the lens of kind of um, help us understand how it all went wrong is that you're looking for blame. You're looking to say whose fault it is. Uh, You know, and there is this tendency with everything with the U S and Iran uh, to kind of look for blame and victims and heroes and villains. Um, I think that's an unfortunate way to approach history because history is not a weapon uh, that you use to kind of hit your opponent with. It's not a a, a kind of bludgeon that you're using to kind of say, no, you started it, you know, no, you started it. You know, I think the history is actually much richer and much more interesting than that. Of course, there are these, Moments in history that everyone likes to point to. You know, if you are more inclined to be critical of the Islamic Republic of Iran and more supportive of the United States and its foreign policy, naturally you begin this story in 1979 with the hostage crisis. Uh, you know, when the U.S. embassy was taken uh, by student radicals uh, for over a year. You know, there's this feeling of, well, that's where it all went wrong. Before that, everything was great. Okay. Um, that's fine, but then tell me more about what do you mean when you say everything was great. I mean, sure, there was a a warm relationship between the United States and Iran at the political governmental level, but the Shah's government was extremely unpopular uh, and, you know, for a lot of good reasons. Uh, And so, you know, all was not necessarily uh, perfect uh, in this relationship. On the other hand, if you are more inclined to be supportive of the Islamic Republic, or even just more supportive of the Iranian nationalist viewpoint, and more critical of the United States and its foreign policy, you are more likely to point to 1953 as the moment where everything went wrong. Uh, The moment when the CIA, of course, gave its backing to uh, a coup that overthrew the very popular Iranian Prime Minister, Mohammad Mossadegh. Again, it's perfectly reasonable to begin the narrative here and to say, well, that is where everything went wrong. Before that, everything was wonderful. Okay. But again, my question to you would be, well, tell me more. When you say everything was great before that, what did that look like? Most people I think who like to point to 1953 have some sense that there was this ideal uh, world before then. Uh, But if pressed actually have a very difficult time really describing it, like, what was that? Was there a sort of golden age of US-Iran relations in the 1940s, 1930s, 20s, 1910s? Um, I would argue, yeah, you could make that case, but you know, that is something that I think we don't know very much about. Um, and was it really a golden age? I think that might be a bit strong. You know, I think that um, it was a mixed bag as things always are. Um, so this is what I was trying to get us away from, is this kind of using history as a, as a way to trade blame and accusations? Because I think when you do that, you start to discover some really interesting things. Here is what I found most intriguing about this early history. And of course, I take the book all the way up to the present day. It's not like it's just focused on the early history. But I think by taking a broader, wider lens, a number of interesting things came up for me. One is that, you know, I was looking at, I kind of wanted to begin not just with the history, not just with the early history, but also with the prehistory the kind of preconceived notions that these two cultures had of, of each other before they even came into contact. Because I think that's just as important in many cases, that, that kind of initial impression you have of someone before you even meet them, uh, before you even meet them and then, and then come into conflict with them. I mean, that's a long history. Um, and this was really interesting to me. Uh, one of the things that I discovered is that, well, I looked at the very, very first newspapers ever published in North America, in colonial North America. Newspapers published in Philadelphia and Boston in the 1720s and discovered, much to my surprise, that they were obsessed with Iran. I didn't even think they'd be talking about Iran, but they were actually talking about Iran at great length. You had newspapers in the 1720s that spent 25, 30 percent of their uh, column inches talking about Iran uh, or Persia, as they would have called it you had newspaper, I came across a newspaper in Philadelphia published in uh, around 1724, where the lead story was, we regret that we have no news from Persia this week. That was a headline story in North America in the 1720s. We're sorry we have, nothing, we have no news from Iran. Now, this blew my mind, as I, and I suspect it's surprising to a lot of you as well. I mean, and the natural question is, why? Why on earth would people in North America, why these newspapers be so consumed with Iran? In, in this period. Um, and by the way, it's not that they were just really interested in Iran, it's that they were also very, very pro-Irani. Uh, and that is what really shocked me as well. So a lot has changed obviously, but... Um, so w- what is the reason for this? And we don't, we don't have time to get into all of the reasons, but uh, it's a combination of religion and politics. Um, basically, there was a rebellion that was taking place against the Safavid Empire in the east, uh, led by Mahmoud Hotaqi. In 1722, the Afghans were revolting because the, the Persians had, were trying to force them to convert from Sunni to Shia Islam. So the American newspapers at the time assumed, not just the American, the European newspapers, assumed that if this was a Sunni-Shia thing, that the Afghan rebellion was being secretly supported by the Ottoman Empire. That there was collusion between the Ottomans and the Afghans. Now, that wasn't the case at all. (laughs) It was just wrong. This is the first case of the American media just completely misunderstanding the region. Um, But there was this assumption that because the Ottoman Empire was this great Sunni power and because the Persian Empire was its great rival and was Shia, that therefore the Afghans were being secretly supported by the Ottomans. And therefore, that made the Persians the good guys and the Ottomans the bad guys and by extension, the Afghans the bad guys. And so you had these newspapers that were cheering on the Iranians, cheering on the Persian Empire uh, against what they called the usurper, you know, uh, uh, in in, Mahmoud, Hotaki and so on. They were incredibly one sided. And not only that, but they were, you know, they were uh, were explaining to their readers the difference between Sunni and Shia. Not very well, but they were trying. Um, They liked the fact that the Iranians were Shia because they were seen as somehow less Muslim. Uh, They were seen as heretics by the Sunni majority. So that was good. Uh, They're somehow less threatening, less Ottoman, less Muslim, um, slightly heretical. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, And for a long time, this idea, there was this idea that there was a, a, you know, the Ottoman Empire was the evil empire of its day, right? If you think back to your early history, the Crusades, uh, the long history of kind of antagonism between Christian Europe and the Ottoman Empire, Uh, remember that in 1683, the Ottoman Empire had come to the gates of Vienna. Okay, so for white North American settlers in places like Massachusetts and Pennsylvania in the 1720s, this was only 40 years later. It was within living memory. The, The Ottoman Empire was a true threat to them. You may think thousands of miles away, why would it be a threat? But they still saw themselves as as Christian, European subjects, subjects of the British crown. Um, So this was a threat to their whole way of life. So the Persians seemed less threatening. Slightly to the east of this kind of evil empire was this sort of fairy tale land of Persia. They didn't know that much about. But what they did know about Persia, they knew from the Bible. And the Bible, in the Bible, Iran comes, Persia comes out looking very good because it's the, you know, Cyrus uh, great liberates the Jews from the Babylonian captivity in Ezra chapter one. Um, The three magi, the three wise men from the east, right? Magi is plural of magus, which means Mog, which is a Zoroastrian priest. The the three wise men from the east were probably Iranians. Okay, this is how Persia looks to uh, the early settlers of New England and North America. They remember that for them, the Bible was like a reference book. It was, they took it very literally. These were Calvinists, uh, Puritans, right? And they didn't, it's not like they had anywhere else to really, you know, I mean, a lot of other sources of information about Persia. Um, to the extent that they did, it was the, the Greek histories, which were always, which were also very complimentary about Persia, like Herodotus, and Xenophon, and things like that. Uh, So there began to be this kind of like idealization of this faraway kingdom. But it was even more than that. The Ottomans were also in possession of the Holy Land, right? They had destroyed Jerusalem. They were defiling it, right? But all of the holy sites were within Ottoman territory. But the East, there was nothing. There was nothing of kind of spiritual significance for Christians. You know, they even believed that the Persian Empire began just to the east of the Garden of Eden. They believe the Garden of Eden was somewhere around Mosul in northern Iraq today. Uh, So it was almost like this kind of divinely ordained coincidence that just to the east of Eden, literally, was this perfect, idyllic, fairy tale land that was less Muslim, less threatening, et cetera, et cetera. Now, why am I going on about this for so long? Because this is the preconceived notion, the baggage that Americans bring before they even come into contact with Iranians. When the very first American Christian missionaries started arriving to live in Iran in the 1830s, this is 100 years later, more than 100 years later, in the 1830s, they brought a lot of this baggage, intellectual baggage, with Justin Perkins, the first Presbyterian, American Presbyterian missionary to live in Iran. When he arrived, when he came across the mountains, the Zagros Mountains, into the Urumia plain northwestern Iran, he described it, the word he used was Edenic. Edenic, like it was the Garden of Eden. It felt like it was a paradise. This was the way they thought about stuff. This stuff has a long afterlife. I would argue that it never really disappeared until the 1970s. Those of you who might be old enough to remember this, well, no, in the 1970s, if you lived in the the United States, you you talked about Iran. People didn't know much about it, but there still was this lingering idea that this was this exotic Persian kingdom, you know, um, led by this pro-American king, uh, who seemed to be on our side, who was a little bit less threatening than the Arab world, which was just to his West, right? So instead of the Ottoman Empire in the 1970s, now you had, you know, if you were, if you were in the US and you looked at the Middle East in the 1970s, you, most people associated the Middle East with uh, Arab um, socialist governments, uh, and, you know, wars with Israel, uh, the Arab oil embargo, uh, you know, these things that we didn't like. But just to the east of that, here was this pro-American, very glamorous, exotic kind of Persian monarch, the Shah. Right? I think that you can draw a straight line between this kind of the, the way these kinds of ideas uh, linger. On the Iranian side, there's a very similar thing, but it's it's similar but different, right? It comes a little bit later. So the Iranians also idealized the United States not so much in the 1720s when they didn't know much about it because there was no United States, but they didn't know much about North America. You know. um, they called it the Yengi the, Dunya, the New World. But about 100 years later, by the 1840s, 1850s, Iran, as some of you might know, was really struggling with Russian and British imperialism, uh, these capitulations agreements, the Treaty of Turkmenchai, all these kinds of things. Slowly feeling its sovereignty being chipped away by these kind of lopsided agreements with uh, Britain and Russia. And it really wanted to cultivate other allies. The United States was the obvious choice. Beginning in the mid 19th century, when Iranians looked at the the West, they recognized that the West was becoming, or the Farangi, whatever you want to call it, was, was becoming more powerful militarily, economically, politically, and that Iran and the Ottoman Empire were declining, relatively speaking. So they recognized that they needed to learn and catch up, but they didn't like these lopsided kinds of arrangements. So when they looked at the United States, they saw a country that was Western, that was European as far as they were concerned. They considered the U.S. a European country, um, but somehow less evil, less imperialistic. What they they were really struck by was that the United States had had a revolution against the British Empire. So they saw it inherently as a kind of anti-imperialist kind of country. They also saw that the U.S. was a country that didn't seem to want to interfere in the affairs of smaller and weaker countries. That was really appealing to them. All these American missionaries had come to Iran to start building schools and clinics. But weirdly, their government hadn't established an embassy or a legation, as they would have called it at the time. The US government seemed to have no interest in Iran, and that made it kind of appealing. Unlike the British and the Russians, and to some extent French, Belgians, other countries that were trying to take advantage of Iran in this kind of great game across Central Asia, here was a country that had all the advantages of the West, but none of the negative associations, the the imperialism, whatever, greed. The US seemed to be this altruistic, anti-imperialist country that understood and left alone smaller and weaker countries like Iran. So in a sense, this is the equivalent of the East of Eden. This is like a West of Eden. Like This was a, 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 you know, uh, a nicer, nicer, friendlier version of the West. And I would say that remained the case until the 1950s, until the CIA coup in 1953, when the, when the Iranians became really disillusioned with the United States. And the US maintained its version of this until 1979 when Americans became really disillusioned with Iran and with Persia. I think these things are relevant. And I think this is what you get when you start to look at the deep history. There's so much more I could say, uh, but I want to keep this short. I will end on this one sort of anecdote, though. I mean, the very first disagreement that Iran and the United States ever had with each other took place in the 1850s. And this is when the two countries were trying to do their first ever treaty of friendship. They were desta- establishing diplomatic relations in the 1850s. And it took five years to negotiate that treaty. Longer than it took to negotiate the JCPOA. Okay? Longer than they spent negotiating the nuclear. And you say, why, what, why would it take five years to negotiate a treaty of friendship between the U.S. and Iran in 1851? There were a lot of sticking points, it turns out. But one of the most fascinating ones to me was that the Iranians were insisting that they wanted to buy American warships and uh, manned with uh, American troops, American sailors, uh, flying the Stars and Stripes and have that be part of the Persian Navy and the Persian merchant shipping in the Persian Gulf as a way to send a message to the British Empire, which was at the time very strong uh, in its positions in the Persian Gulf. The United States, for whom Iran was, might as well have been Antarctica at this point, I mean, in, in, you know where it is, um, this was ridiculous. They said, no, we don't want to get involved in your affairs. Like, that's none of our business. That's where it began. That was the first disagreement these two countries ever had, with Iran saying we want the United States more involved in our business and the U.S. saying, no, 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 we, hands off, we don't want to get involved in your stuff. That is the first dispute between the United States and Iran in the 1850s. That's what we lose when we don't look at the deep history. Um, You know, generation after generation, one Iranian government after another, from the 1850s until the 1940s, really set it as a strategic priority to get the United States, to cultivate the United States as a third force power to balance out the influence of Britain and Russia. And they always failed. Um, but that's what, that was you know, a key part of Iranian foreign policy. And that's something that most people don't realize. Why? Because most American historians, when they approach the subject, they're using American archives. And American archives, this is actually a part of a, a larger problem that we have, right? Uh, and I'll stop here. But one of the, things I want, the other things I want to do differently with this book is that you know, most histories of this relationship that have been written have used either just American archives or Iranian archives. And there are some really obvious reasons for that, right? It's really difficult to get access for you know, each other's countries. But I really wanted to use both sets of archives, so I actually took three archive, three trips to Iran and worked in the archives. And I managed, with a lot of difficulty, to get access to uh, the Iranian Foreign Ministry archives, which, you know, really, as far as I was, as far as I knew, no other kind of Western scholar had been able to gain access. To. And this was important because this is where you start to really get the richness of the story now. We're using, when you kind of bring the two archives together to to really weave a story because until now, when, you know, American historians who, you know, have used, written the story just using American archives, they tend to begin the story in the 1940s. Why? Because before Pearl Harbor, before 1942, the U.S. is a deeply isolationist power and has no interest in getting involved in parts of the world like Iran. Okay. So American historians naturally look at the archives and they think, well, this story isn't that important before 1940. There isn't much of a relationship there. Okay, well, that's interesting, but that's actually not true. And it's also a very problematic way of approaching history, which is to say that this history only becomes important when the U.S. becomes interested. Right? Because for 90 years before that, the Iranians were actually very interested in getting the U.S. involved in their business. Uh, and in cultivating a closer relationship with the United States. And that is also an important part of the story. And that's something that you miss when you only look at American archives. Because American archives, American, uh, you know, they they reveal uh, just a lack of real interest or enthusiasm, and so they don't talk about Iran that much. And so you think, oh, there couldn't have been much going on. Well, then that's not true. There wasn't much going on from the, I wouldn't even say there wasn't much going on, but there was less going on from the American side uh, than there was from the Iranian side. Um, and so this is, these are some of the things I was trying to bring out, uh, with the book. So I'll stop here and I'm just really interested in hearing some of your questions and and thoughts and and having a conversation. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much, John. That was, uh, incredibly interesting. So happy to hear you talk about your book, uh, which I have read. So, uh, while we wait for people to post their questions, uh, I'd like to start with one of mine. So, there was one part of your book where I was just fascinated, and I thought, wow, how did you figure this out? And it was the part where you described how American men tried to impress women with their knowledge of the Rubaiyat, or um, you talked about how Persia was the theme for high society functions. Um, That one was. Uh, easier for me to figure out how you might have gotten there, but, but describing how men tried to impress women with the Rubaiyat, that's definitely in my mind, that seems a much harder thing to figure out because that's not just an event. You're, you successfully understood the behavior of Americans at that time. How did you find something so detailed that it, it, like that couldn't have possibly been in newspapers, this actual behavior? How did you come to that? How did you find that out? Uh,
1: it's a good question. It's a very specific question. Uh, and to be honest, I'm having trouble now remembering, and it's been quite a while since I did that initial research. I mean, I've been working on this book for a very long time. Um, so that level of specificity is not super mm-hmm. fresh in my mind. But I, I, uh, I think the broader um, point I was trying to make was that uh, things like Omar Khayyam became very, very popular in, Iraq, in, in the U.S. just before the First World War. Uh, Anecdotally, you can see that there are more editions of Omar Khayyam being published around that time. Uh, There are films that are being, I mean, one of the earliest films of Boris Karloff in 1922, I think it was, Omar, The Tent Maker. I mean, the whole Omar Khayyam, you know, kind of uh, cult of personality was, uh, you know, it wasn't the first time. And it was something that people were interested in the 19th century as well. But it started to really, there seemed to be just anecdotally a lot more interest in that in the early 20th century, uh, particularly around 1910, 11, 12. Um, In terms of, uh, you know, people sort of impress, trying to woo their, uh, you know, use kind of the Rubaiyat in the
0: courtships. I mean, I just, I have to say that's that's not very fresh in my mind, but hopefully I've footnoted that. That's that's totally fine. I was just um, incredibly fascinated by something like that, Mainly because it it surprised me myself, but it just had me interested in how you worked in the specific archives and found these and you touched on them. Um, So another question is, uh, can you comment on President Truman's period?
1: Yes, uh, I see that question. I don't know uh, if perhaps the person asking that question could be a little bit more specific. I don't know if there's a particular aspect of President Truman's. Period uh, that uh, he's interested in, but I think uh, you're probably talking about the build-up to the coup. Um, of course, Truman famously, the Truman administration was opposed to the idea of taking covert action against Mossadegh. Uh, but you know, the Truman's Secretary of State Dean Acheson believed very strongly that Mossadegh re- represented some kind of, you know, real sea change among the developing world—a uh, kind of. Uh, sort of third world nationalism, um, that the U.S. should be on the right side of history uh, with that one and not on the wrong side of history. Although, of course, we ended up on the wrong side of history when the Eisenhower administration took over in 1953 and launched uh, Operation Ajax. Um, Other than that, uh, you know, the Truman era followed on, you know, Roosevelt under the FDR, the U.S. had begun to uh, uh, launch these three advisory, very large advisory missions into Iran, the gendarmerie mission, under Norman Schwarzkopf, the, uh, Armish, uh, the, Army, the Army mission, um, and uh, a financial advisory mission under Arthur Millspool. Uh, all of those continued. Um, all of those continued under Truman. Um, and okay, I see that there's a clarification of the question. Ambassador Grady. Yes, that is correct. Henry Grady is a fascinating figure. He was uh, very pro Mossaddev, very anti British. Uh, Grady was a Son of Irish immigrants. I mean, I don't like to sort of personalize or essentialize anyone in that way, but I think that was a significant part of his makeup. He was very anti-British, very anti-opposed to British imperialism, um, and recognized and felt that Mossadegh was a highly popular figure that the U.S. should support. Um, he was ultimately not listened to, but uh, he was no longer in. He, no, he was no longer ambassador by the time uh, the coup was launched. By that point, he had left, and it was Lloyd Henderson uh, who was U.S. ambassador. Um, in Iran, if you're interested, Grady actually wrote his memoirs, so they've never been published. They are actually fascinating memoirs, uh, but they are out there. Uh, and I think frankly, they should be published.
0: Great. Uh, we can head on to the next question. Uh, what is the social and cultural relationships, uh, people to people historically?
1: A Very big question. that uh, is that, uh, is covered in great depth in the book, uh, and, I mean, the short answer is, of course, it's very different in every historical period. So, initially, that's where the relationship begins. Uh, it begins with some of that preconceived notions that I talked about. But, I mean, the first actual contacts between the peoples are probably cultural. I mean, I think all relations are cultural in, to some extent. But, uh, you know, probably rum traders from New England were the first ones to be interacting with Iran, uh, selling... Run to Iran. Um, the first American who actually set foot in Iran was a man by the name of uh, Joel Roberts Poinsett. Gave his name to the Poinsettia flower. He was a South Carolina gentleman uh, who, in eighteen o I'm forgetting the exact date now, uh, was traveling through um, what is now our uh, Azerbaijan uh, around Baku. At the time, it was uh, part of Persia. Uh, but he crossed the border from Russia into uh, the area around Baku. Didn't go all the way to Tehran, but uh, there's a fascinating story that I love to tell with that, where he meets the local village uh, Khan, the local chief, um, and they're having conversations and they're right. And he, there's a scribe who's writing down everything they say, because they're fascinated by this man from the Yengi Donya, the new world. He says that they didn't even, they didn't know anything about America. They, they believed that they knew about um, France and uh napoleon and and um uh they knew about the czar and britain and and, you know all this kind of stuff he said they didn't he said they they heard about heard my stories about the new about america and the new world with the same scanty faith that they would listen to an arabian tale uh you know it was like america was like a fantasy land for them Um, but one of the things i love about that story is they kept asking him who is your king uh, and this is you know, early 1800s, and he was trying, struggling to explain this unique system of government that the U.S. had just come up with, constitutional republicanism. And they weren't having it. They were saying, "No, no, okay, but right, but who is your king?" Uh, and he says he eventually gave up, and they, they were writing down everything he was saying. And he said, "I eventually gave up." And he said, "Somewhere in the annals of Gubba, the small town that he was in, uh, the name of Thomas Jefferson is inscribed as the Shah of, of, Shah of America." Um, so you know these are some of the, and are some of the very first exchanges and then as I mentioned you have Presbyterian missionaries who go over from the 1830s 40s 50s for the next hundred years they are the main social cultural interaction between uh, the two peoples much more so than the government to government level much more significant I think at least for the late 19th, mid, mid to late 19th century arguably well into the 20th century um, then you have archaeologists uh, who are very significant as well, the 1930s in places like Ray and Uh, uh And uh, my own university, University of Pennsylvania, did a lot of the really important digging in the early days uh, in Iran, as, as did the University of Chicago and the Metropolitan Museum in New York. Uh, and then you have business ties, uh, of course, around this time as well. Uh, and then after that, it becomes much more of a, of a high-level political relationship in the 1940s, 50s onwards. Uh, but even after that, But social, cultural, people-to-people exchanges are very important. In the 1950s, you had a lot of these, you know, leader grants. You had people-to-people exchanges. Uh, Iranians coming to the U.S. to study. Americans uh, going to Iran in the Peace Corps, which became very, very important from the 1960s and 70s. Uh, Americans helping to establish universities in Iran. Again, my own university played a very big role in this. Shiraz University, or Pahlavi, Pahlavi University, as it was known at the time, was... Established with a lot of assistance from the University of Pennsylvania, from uh, its president at the time, Gaylord Harnwell. Um, So these are some of the exchanges. And they have not completely dried up since the revolution either. I mean, there have been, particularly in the Khatami era, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there were a lot of social, cultural and people-to-people exchanges uh, as well. And then, of course, the very large Iranian diaspora living in the United States today. These continue um, informally, although obviously not supported by any kind of official. Um, official uh, bilateral relationship. That's a very long answer, but it was a very big question. So I don't, I don't know which period in history you're interested in.
0: Fascinating. Thank you so much, John. Uh, the next question is, did the creation of the U.S. Constitution have any influence on Iranian intellectuals during the constitutional period of 1906?
1: The U.S. Constitution specifically, I've, I've seen no evidence of that. But here's, so the Iranian constitution of 1906 is based, was based largely on the Belgian constitution. But as I argued, actually, this, this ended up getting cut from my book, but as, I, as I, I, I believe that actually there were many influences for the constitutional revolution. You know, we know that the British were very influential, but yeah, I don't think that was the only, you know, the French. I think there were many, many different ideas about constitutionalism that were being floated around at the time, uh, French, Belgian, British, as well as even, you know, uh, Japanese uh, was, you know, Japan was inspirational uh, in many ways uh, because of the, the kind of war they were they were fighting with the Russians around the time. All, the stuff that was going on in the Ottoman Empire, what would eventually lead to the Young Turk uh, Rebellion. So I think this was part of an atmosphere of kind of intellectual ferment. But one of the things that's really struck me is when I look at some of the reformist newspapers at the time, particularly like the newspaper Tadbiyat, which was published by, Fururi uh, in the late late 90s, early early 1900s. He talked a lot about American constitutionalism, about American democracy, American uh, political system, about Benjamin Franklin and the founding fathers, and there was a lot of stuff like that in there. Um, so I think that was all in pretty much in the
0: air um, uh, at the time. Great, thank you. The, the next question, uh, in your opinion, who controlled the master narratives in Iran and in the U.S. about each other? Who in the elite class? Uh, recent rhetoric would be the great Satan versus axis of evil. What was the master narrative before this one?
1: Um, it's an interesting way of asking. The question. I'm not sure what you mean by master narrative and who controlled the narrative, but I mean, I can tell you what sort of forces shaped the narrative. Um, I think that uh, and again, uh, depends on what period you're talking about. Um, but if we're talking about this under the Shah's regime, of course, this, the Cold War was the dominant thinking of, for everyone, uh, both in Iran, especially in, in the United States. And, and the Shah was a very loyal Cold War ally of the United States. He was, I think, genuinely, temperamentally anti-communist in his thinking. Uh, and that was very convenient for the U.S. Um, he was a reliable kind of pillar of American policy. Uh, And I think that really helped to shape the narrative, basically, uh, in both countries. Um, You know, Iran was always presented in U.S. official parlance as an island of stability in an otherwise troubled region, Uh, though I think, of course, famously right up until the end, the U.S. was simply not aware of how troubled Iran itself actually was. Um, uh, And in in, in Iran, as I say, that... the narrative was mixed in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, especially among liberal middle classes. Uh, there was a lot of resentment against the you know, United States for the overthrow of Mossadegh in 1953. Uh, the left was temporarily anti-American anyway. Uh, you know, but at least on the official level, you know, the U.S. was generally presented in a very positive light uh, in, uh, in Iran. Um, before the Cold War there isn't so much of a master narrative as there is these kind of exchanges that I've already uh, kind of touched on. So I don't know, I hope that helps to answer the question.
0: Thank you. Uh, The next question is, do you have any comments regarding the approach and relationship of the two major parties, uh, DIMS and GOP in the U S with Iran, uh, government and politics, society and people, economy and trade, in particular, since world war II?
1: It's a very interesting question actually. Um, I enjoyed that question in a lot of ways. Uh and I think the answer is that it's changed a lot obviously. A lot has changed since World War II. Um, taking it chronologically in those early days 1940s especially 1950s early cold war the well obviously famously the democrat you know Truman didn't want to overthrow Mossadegh and Eisenhower did you know so that's one very big difference. But that comes out of a very different way of thinking that the Democrats and the Republicans had about the Cold War in its early days, especially in the 50s and the 60s. The as a generalization, the, the Democrats generally believed, and they, they were both committed to fighting communism. But the Democrats generally believed that the way to do that was to give in the in the third world, as they call it, in the developing world, was to give people less reason to turn to communism. So to support. People like Mossadegh to support, you know, social democracy where it existed, um, to support governments that were, uh, broadly speaking, attending to the social welfare and well-being of their people, uh, that were creating social safety nets, political reforms, popular participation. The idea being that if you could get people to see that there are rewards for for not turning communist, that you know, people's lives can be bettered. The lot that poverty can be eradicated, but then they have no naturally have no reason to become to turn to communists. The Republican approach to the third world uh, was very different. It was anything that looks, sounds, or smells like a communist is a communist. That you should give no quarter, that you should be as careful as possible. That the social democrats in countries like Iran, it's not just true in Iran. but throughout the developing world, that these countries were not ready for democracy. Uh, they weren't really ready for European, Western European style social, dem- social democracy or democratic socialism. Um, that, that kind of approach would lead only to instability uh, in weak countries, countries with in weak institutions. And that instability would then be taken advantage of by Soviet agents to provoke a communist revolution. Uh, and that therefore you had to be really tough. Uh, and support tough strongman rule, strong, anti communist strongman rule like the rule of the Shah. That was one big difference, very big difference between Eisenhower on the one hand and Kennedy, for example, who came along and really pushed the Shah in the direction of reform. The same with Jimmy Carter, less so with Lyndon Johnson, who was very tied up with Vietnam and was a little bit more of a realist, uh, you know, kind of pragmatist, kind of a um, realpolitik kind of politician. But very much, you could see it with, like, with Nixon, with Kissinger give the Shah everything he needs, give him all the money he needs, all the weapons he needs, let him do our bidding in the region. Uh, Let him be a sort of pillar of American policy in the region. This is the kind of thing we need more of uh, during the Cold War. Now, since then, it's very interesting. I would say under the Islamic Republic, ironically, this is a generalization, I think the Islamic Republic prefers Republican presidents, uh, Republican administrations, uh, for a couple of reasons. I think they kind of know where they stand. With Republicans. Uh, There's no illusions. I think one of the things that they don't like about democratic administrations, and I think one of the things that makes democratic administrations generally more successful at weakening Iran, is that they are more generally better at working in a multilateral framework and bringing the world round to kind of a a unified position of kind of containment of the Islamic Republic, Um, thus isolating Iran and making Iran look like the problem. Republicans tend to shoot themselves in the foot by taking this really heavy-handed maximum pressure kind of strategy, regime change kind of strategy, which doesn't do anything more than unite the Iranian people behind their government, whether they want to or not, and it makes European allies less inclined to go along with the American policy, and it makes the U.S. seem more like a problem. Um, The other reason is I think that, you know, frankly, they. They, so I think that the Islamic Republic just feels like there's like a more straightforwardness and an honesty about the Republicans. It's like the Democrat, you know, the Dem- <laughs> to be honest, you know, it's like, there's this feeling that like, well, the Democrats are still, they still have the same goal, which is to weaken and isolate Iran, but they're just better at it. Um, and they're maybe less honest about it. You know, they kind of come out with this kind of nice, soft language about unclenched fists and whatever. But, you know, at the end of the day, all they're doing is putting more sanctions. I mean, the Obama presidency, you know, the first term at least, you know, it was nice rhetoric, but actually there's increased sanctions and isolation very Iran. Um, so, you know, that's a huge generalization. You know, And then let's, let's not also forget that it was during the Reagan administration that Iran was actually buying weapons from the United States. So, I mean, I think that uh, in some ways it's counterintuitive to what we might think, but that's just a, a huge generalization.
0: Thank you. Uh, in your introduction, you mentioned that the U.S. gave its quote, backing to the coup. Was this deliberate? And you don't think the U.S. themselves instigated the coup?
1: Um, No, I think they did. Uh, So I'm being deliberately, well, the only thing that's deliberate is my deliberate choice of language uh, to try to be careful, because I know sometimes people get a little bit touchy around this stuff. There is a, and I would warn you all not to be taken in by this, there is recently, unfortunately, a highly, highly um, ahistorical, uh, and ideological attempt by some people uh, to try to rewrite history and act as if the, the play down the U.S. role in the coup in 1953 to the point where it almost seems insignificant. And they do this under the cover of, oh, we have to give more agency to Iranians. It sounds really good, especially if you're a kind of progressive person. You think, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, you know, we talk more about the role that Iranians themselves played uh, in 1953. You know, why why are we acting as if Iranians have no agency? You know, that they're just these like, helpless victims of the American imperial. You know, that sounds good in theory, but the reality is that the overwhelming, strongly established historical record shows the United States played the decisive role, the CIA played the decisive role in the overthrow of Mossad Depp. I'll say that as clearly as I can. That doesn't mean that there weren't Iranian actors involved, of course there were. I mean, you can't have a coup like that without some Iranian involvement. Um, but you know, Fazlullah Zahidi, is not, in 1953, is not Iran. Uh, you know, he's he happens to be Iranian, but he doesn't represent all of Iran. Doesn't even represent much of Iran, uh, quite honestly. So, you know, uh, I would be careful about being taken in by that. This is a very recent kind of um, direction of so-called scholarship that's coming out of particularly very sort of neocon, kind of regime-changey kind of quarters and think tanks in the United States. Um, there isn't a serious historian out there that actually buys into that. So, uh, if you hear people trying to tell you that, um, no, sorry. Um, so yeah, whether you call it backing or instigation, I mean, it's a semantic points. I use the more cautious word initially because I'm trying not to trigger people. Uh, that's basically <laughs> um, that's basically why I think I, I put it in a more slightly more conservative term like that. So I, I just answered your question. So why say backing? I was just trying to be a little
0: bit more conservative in my language. Thank you. Uh, I have another question. You wrote that in the beginning, uh, that beginning in the late 1960s, the U.S. government and media was bombarded with letters from students and other Iranian-Americans attempting to raise awareness of the cruelty of the Shah's regime. Could you elaborate on how an environment existed where the U.S. was seemingly so unaware of the human rights abuses uh, of the Shah and his savag? Do you think that this was more ignorance, wishful thinking, or simply the inability to confirm that these allegations were true?
1: I would say it was actually a little bit of all three of those things. Mm. Um, Quite honestly, that would be a very simple answer. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, I don't think they were completely ignorant, uh, but I do think there was a certain level of wishful thinking um, in terms of, look, in the late 1960s, especially Vietnam and Southeast Asia was the number one foreign policy priority for the United States. Iran seemed to be a country where everything was going reasonably well. When they looked at the Middle East, there were more troublesome places in the Middle East um, in the late 1960s, especially uh, on the Arab-Israeli front, but also, of course, uh, some of the increasingly socialist leanings of uh, Ba'ath Party-led uh, countries like Sir- Syria and Iraq uh, that were more concerning uh, to uh, to American foreign policy. Uh, Community. Iran just didn't seem to be a problem. Uh, It's a little bit like um, I don't know Morocco today. You know, there's this feeling of like, okay, or Jordan. It's like everything's fine. I mean, is everything fine? No, nothing's nothing's ever fine anyway. I mean, there's always something, but there's this feeling like, well, these aren't serious problems. The Shah, you know, has his seems to have good strong control. Uh, of the situation, and frankly, the people they were hearing from disproportionately were educated middle class students, a lot of Iranian students studying in the U.S. So it was easy to kind of say, you know, what this is a kind of elite, you know, preoccupation. This is not most of Iran. is you know, this, this, this is not a pre-revolutionary state, and indeed, it wasn't in the late 1960s. I would not want to imply that they should have been somehow alarmed and said, "Oh my God, we have a crisis." No, they didn't have a crisis on their hands in the late 1960s or late 1970s, or sorry, early 1970s. But by the late, mid to late 1970s, yeah, there was, you know, starting to have a crisis on their hands. And by that point, they just didn't see it coming. Same reason that many countries didn't see it coming. I mean, um, remember that by the 1970s, the the Iranian government did not allow U.S. embassy staff, including CIA agents, to leave the embassy without being accompanied by a SAVAK agent. So that just there goes your intelligence gathering right there. You're not going to get any kind of you know, real intelligence on the country. Uh, and the U.S. deferred to the Shah because he was such an important ally. Um, so it's a little bit of
0: all of those things. Great. Um, we have, this might just be a comment, uh, religious narrative dominated the onset of understanding of two nations. It continues to be so even today. Opposition slash hatred of some senators today justified or not smacks of the same. So that looks like a comment. If, if you have any comment to that
1: sure i fully understand the comment but i think it's saying that um a lot of the antagonism has is being driven by sort of religiously informed um in both countries i think um yeah i think there's some of that i don't think that explains everything i think there are a whole lot of reasons why the antagonism continues to this day i think there are stakeholders both in Iran and in the U.S. and in the region that do not want to see a better relationship between Iran and the United States. You have hardliners in Iran, uh, hardliners in the U.S., uh, the Israelis, the Saudis. I mean, there's a lot a lot of people who were quite happy to see this antagonism um, continue and not all driven by religious, but in fact, I would even say most of them not really even driven by religion per se, but I think that it, it comes into it, sure. Um, I hope that answers the question,
0: Thank you. Uh, The next question is, do you think there will ever be a large-scale military conflict between Iran and the U.S., and why?
1: No, absolutely not. That's an easy question. I've been saying that now for 20 years, and everyone thinks I'm crazy. I think the first time that people stopped telling me I was crazy was about a year ago after the Qasem Soleimani assassination, because if ever there was a moment where it looked like the war would break out, that was it, and it didn't. Uh, And to me, that really indicated exactly why I've always felt this. Because at the end of the day, neither country has any real appetite for going to war with the other for a whole host of reasons. Uh, It would be absolutely catastrophic for both countries. Um, Every single time they pull back, they pull back. Uh, You know, I think the rhetoric of war and regime change has been instrumentalized and has been useful in the United States for achieving certain ends uh, at various points. Uh, Getting the Iranians to believe that they might be under threat. Uh, in 2003 and four and five, played a pretty decisive, you know, or you know, uh, was used as a way to kind of like, you know, put pressure on them for their nuclear program. Um, you know, and, and vice versa. I mean, but no, I mean, I, neither country has anything to gain from going to war with the other. <laughs> it's, you know.
0: Thank you. Uh, the next question: Looking forward, what's your assessment of the future relations between the U.S. and Iran? What are the signposts or change in the relationship, for better or worse?
1: As a historian, I'm not always very comfortable in the future. <laughs> a little bit more comfortable in the past. Um, so predictions don't come easily to me. But I think that. Um, uh, you know, I think in the short term, no major change. I think even if they're able to do a deal in Vienna over the JCPOA, I think it'll be sort of kicking the can down the road and taking us back to the, to the old days of kind of containment. I don't know if the Biden administration is seriously interested in building on a potential, a potential deal with Iran to um, kind of reset its relationships in the region somewhat. I think maybe a little bit. I think that was Obama's ambition. Um, but I think he was very quickly, uh, thwarted and frankly outsmarted by the Israelis. Um, you know, this idea that the U S needs to reset its kind of alliance structure in the region. I think that would be great. Frankly, I think the U S needs a more diversified set of, you know, kind of friendships, but it's not like these two countries are about to become friends overnight. You know, we're not going to, it's not going to happen anytime soon. You're not going to have, you know, Biden and the Ayatollah, like, you know, having a summit meeting, you know, somewhere it's just. Um, I mean, maybe these are famous last words and I'll be proved wrong, uh, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, in terms of signposts, uh, I think we, I think, you know what? I'm a, I don't believe in signposts anymore because I think that this has been the problem all along, it's been this kind of incremental approach. I get it. I understand why it makes sense. You know, that's, but I actually think that serious hostility of this kind, you're not going to put it aside incrementally because. There have been so many steps, so many moments when that could have happened, and it hasn't. Uh, and I think that is because you have these different stakeholders, both in the US and Iran and in the region, but that will find ways to undermine any kind of incremental steps. I think that what is needed is a major, serious, you know, kind of um, uh, summit meeting, even though I realize it's probably not going to happen, you know, a serious commitment to, uh, you know, coming together and ending uh, hostility on both. And that requires both countries to exercise extraordinary leadership and have an extraordinary desire to, to have a transformative moment uh, in their relationship, where everything gets laid on the table and negotiated at a summit meeting. But I, I don't. That's
0: not. I don't think that's in the cards right now. Thank you, uh, and we don't want to take up too much of your time. But to end the event on a, a lighter note, uh, you might have already gotten into this, but what to you was the most interesting thing that you learned during your research
1: um, yeah I think I have touched on I mean basically it would be just just how how warm and positive this relationship was and for, for how long I think I hadn't expected to find that mm-hmm. uh, and how far back it went uh, and how positive it was um, yeah I think that that is something that no one working on U.S. Iran relations necessarily expects to find, um, and uh, it was a pleasure to discover because I think it reminded me that things don't need to be like this. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not even though I'm not very optimistic, as I just indicated with my last answer. I am very idealistic. Uh, I do believe that there is no reason why these two countries can't become friends.
0: Thanks for listening to the Iran 1400 podcast. If you liked what you heard, you can check out the full event on YouTube at the Iran 1400 Project. Also, please subscribe to this podcast in order to get notified of upcoming episodes. Lastly, please check us out online at iran1400project.org. And you can also find us on social media on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at the Iran 1400 Project. Thanks again for listening.